Hey, good morning, good morning. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Uh, happy Easter. Thanks for joining us this morning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. There we go. Yeah, this is going to come up multiple times. Just be prepared. When I say He is risen, call and response, right? A little bit of activity going on. Um, happy Resurrection Day. He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right, y'all, we're heading back to Romans 8 this morning. Romans 8. So grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. If you're using your app, that's awesome. Go ahead and open it up. Uh, we're going over to Romans 8. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 944. 944. All right. He is risen. He is risen indeed um, today on this incredible day that we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we come to a passage that's perfect for that celebration. We actually come to the second bookend of the paragraph that we've been studying in Romans 8. I didn't plan this when I laid out the sermon series, but it really could not have been better timed. Um, our passage this morning has a beautiful focus on the resurrection, and I think it's absolutely perfectly appropriate for today. Um, this this paragraph, our, our book of Romans, Romans 8, <laughs> Began Romans eight is is a is a proclamation of the Father's blessing over us. That's where we've been sitting for a couple months. It begins with this incredible declaration: "There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." I mean, what an incredible gift for those who believe in Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation. We believe in Jesus, and we are cleansed not not just not just partially, not just temporarily, not just. Uh, in a limited scope, not just of things in the past. We are completely, totally cleansed of all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our transgression. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And, and Romans 8 moves on quickly to talk about how not only have we had our sin removed, we've had the blessing of the Father given, right? We have been adopted into the family of God. Verses 12 through 17 focused on how we are now children of God. And since we're children of God, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ for waiting for the kingdom of God, right? And while we live in this current age, between the first coming and awaiting the second coming, right? Looking back to the first coming where Jesus came uh, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die, rose again, and then ascended into heaven. And now we're waiting for him to come back to establish the kingdom of God. We wait with hope. And that hope is often painful. Because we're yearning for what we don't yet have. And we, and we hurt in our suffering, and often we even hurt in our prosperity, because it just awakens a deeper appetite for the real thing. We just crave real life, full life, vibrant, meaningful life. We want life the way it was meant to be. We want deep and profound soul rest. We want productive and significant work to, to employ our hands. We want genuine and unconditional love. We want boundless joy. Uh, we want to invest ourselves in things that matter. We wait. And as we wait, we suffer. And because of that, this, this season, uh, we looked at the, the groanings of this season, right? We looked at the groaning of creation. The groaning of we ourselves as we await and the groaning of the Holy Spirit along with us as all three of us come together in this chorus of groaning, awaiting the kingdom of God. 
awaiting the, the full manifestation of his blessing in the return of Jesus, the establishment of his glory, and the revealing of the sons of God. And what's amazing is that Paul says in, in verse 18, is, is I don't consider the sufferings of this present time even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. Not even worthy to be compared. Right? That's how great the glory will be. It will completely eclipse the suffering of this present time. And this morning we come to the final thought in this paragraph. We come to the culminating idea, the high point. And what we're going to see is that like Jesus, right? Jesus was, was um, raised from the dead. And when he, when he was raised from the dead, all of his suffering in the end was wrapped up in that blessing. All of that suffering became part of that blessing. His suffering was eclipsed by His glory and we too shall be raised and the suffering of this current age will not be worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Let's take a look at verses 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. These are the verses we're going to be focusing on this morning, the end of this paragraph. Starting at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Happy Resurrection Day. Happy Happy Easter, right? It's more commonly known as Easter. I like to call it Resurrection Day. Uh, but Easter, y'all, it's kind of a strange thing, isn't it? Right? We wear pastel colors, right? Eggs? Bunnies? Come on, man. It's like, let's celebrate the birth of the, the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, get some eggs and bunnies, right? And baskets and pastel colors? Like, like nothing declares the resurrection of Jesus better than a bow tie on a bunny carrying a basket full of eggs, right? Chocolate, more chocolate. I mean, it is just, it's weird, right? The word Easter itself isn't in the Bible. I don't know if you know that. The word Easter itself actually comes uh, from a a Saxon goddess of fertility, Astorus. Uh, it comes from a really weird phase of Christian history where um, the political leaders wanted to unite the kingdom, and so they decided to, to combine the Christian's celebration of resurrection with the pagan Saxon celebration of fertility, and they they just mixed it all up and threw all this stuff together in a basket, and that's how we get rabbits and eggs and chocolate and Easter. All right, y'all, for all of its weirdness, there is one very, very serious truth at the heart of this holiday. Jesus rose from the dead. And that changed everything. At the incarnation, right? We celebrate the incarnation at Christmas. At the incarnation, God became man, right? And in that, God spoke a word. That's how John puts it, the Gospel of John. John 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word is with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And the idea behind that is that Jesus is the perfect expression of God, the perfect sentence from God. And that sentence, that expression, that thought became flesh and dwelt among us in a way that we could understand who God is and understand what his heart is for us. And we could meet with God, not, not work our way up to God, but God coming down to us, not, not us ascending up the mountain to God's glory, but God coming down the mountain to meet us in our ruin. The message of Jesus, the embodied message of Jesus is a message of steadfast and enduring love. It is a message where God says, I will cross through any difficulty. I will overcome any challenge. I will pursue you to any far country because I am a God of steadfast and enduring love and I will rescue you. I will come to where you are I will endure anything I must endure and pay any price to redeem you and to free you so that I can rescue you to myself. So God became flesh. Theologically, the way we put that is remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Right? He didn't become less than God. Jesus didn't stop being God. He didn't suddenly set aside some of his divine attributes. Right? He still knew everything. He still had all the power in the universe. He still had all wisdom. He was still transcendent, timeless, the eternal I am, existing outside of time. He, he was all of those things, remaining what he was. He became what he was not. He became man. So God created mankind in his own image. And then God became a man. Created himself in his own image. He became human, a perfect human. That was God's message to us. That was the word of God embodied to us. I love you enough to do this. I will come and succeed where you failed. I will come and do what you failed to do. I will come to fix what you broke. And I will do it by living the life you should have lived. And dying the death you deserve to die. I will succeed in all the ways you did not. And then I'll take all the ways you failed. And I will become the embodiment of your rebellion. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God became flesh. And His His embodiment was a message to us. And listen to me, the resurrection is the exclamation point on the end of the sentence. When Jesus rose from the dead, it meant that our sin was defeated, right? Because death for everybody else was permanent. Death was not defeated. Death won. But when Jesus died, he defeated death. He didn't deserve to die. He was the, the willing sacrifice, the, the perfect substitute. And when he paid the price of our sin, he rose again, proving that the price had been paid, that death had been defeated. But it didn't just mean that our sin was defeated so we could be forgiven. It meant that God was so committed to humanity that he would remain eternally connected to us 
by remaining one of us. Yeah, this is where it kind of gets weird, beautiful. Blow your mind towards sort of stuff. Listen, Jesus was born in a human body, right? Okay, yeah, cool, we're, we're cool with that. He was crucified in the human body. Well, of course, there's no other way for him to be crucified. He rose from the grave in a human body. Hmm, that's interesting. He ascended into heaven in a human body. What does that tell us? It tells us that God, in his pursuit of redeeming man, joined himself to mankind eternally. Jesus became human, not as a temporary gesture of love, but as a permanent posture. A declaration that He would redeem humanity by becoming human and becoming the first of a new humanity. And when He was raised from the grave, He was raised as human, the first of the resurrection now, in his resurrection, was he like us? Yes and no, right? In the resurrection, he was like us in, 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 in humanity, but, but he, was, he, was, he isn't like how we are now. He's like how we will be then. So 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes the resurrection in this way. He says it's like a seed being planted in the soil. If you were to take a seed of wheat and plant it in the soil, and it germinates and it grows into the stalk of wheat, They're the same DNA. They're the same essence. They're they're the same genetics. They are the, the same thing. But they're radically different. Jesus was sown into the ground, Paul tells us, a natural body, and he was raised as a spiritual body. Now, that doesn't mean he went from being material to immaterial. That's a kind of a weird English way we use those words. That's not what it's saying at all. What he's saying is that he was, he was sown into the ground a natural body, like, like the, the body that was given to Adam, and he was raised with a spiritual body, a body that was profoundly connected to the Holy Spirit in the spiritual realm, in tune with the kingdom to come, the firstborn of the kingdom of God. Like the seed is different from the stalk. His body differed. It was the same body. It was the same essence. He was human, but now even more truly and profoundly human than he was before. He didn't become something other or less than. He became a greater and more perfect expression of the original intent of humanity. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised as the firstborn of a new humanity. When he was raised for the dead, he wasn't raised simply for himself, but for us, both to secure our justification, our forgiveness, but also to secure our greatest blessing, our future resurrection. When he was raised, Paul tells us that he was raised as the first fruits of humanity. First fruits are always the first installment of a greater harvest. He was the first, but he won't be the last. That's why in in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's very careful. He calls him the last Adam, so very much like Adam, but the last one. So there was the first Adam who acted on behalf of all humanity, and there was the last Adam who acted on behalf of all humanity. But Paul calls him the second man. 
Because while he was only the second truly human being to walk the earth, he will not be the last. He was the first fruits of a new humanity. We are guaranteed believers in Christ that we also will be raised in that glory. Verse 11, in fact, we've already looked at it in Romans 8, says that those of us who have the Spirit, and we all have the Spirit who believe in Jesus, the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies, will raise us as well from the dead. You will be raised. That's why Paul can say, now let's take a look at our passage, that's why Paul can say in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. That's an insane statement. It, it almost seems naively foolish, let's be honest. Right? I mean, it's all things. All things. Like, there's a lot of things in all, aren't there? A lot of things that are kind of ugly. There's a lot of things. If we just talk about all the things that are happening this moment around the world, the war is still raging in Ukraine. Bombs are still dropping. Children are still dying. There's still a famine in Ethiopia. There's still political intrigue, betrayal. There are still people hurting people, rising up against one another, people acting in selfish ambition. Betrayal of trust. All things? I mean, how in the world can you work all things in just this moment, let alone all the things that have happened in all the moments of human history? How can you say all things work together for good? All things. The things that were blessings. The things that were curses. The things that were the fulfillment of 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 faithful endeavors and the things that were the fulfillment of deceit, lying, destruction, and cheating. Listen, y'all, all the things that happen in our life, all the things that happen in human history, each one of them are like a thread. And each one of those individual threads has a different texture, a different color, a different experience. We live in the threads, right? We're very temporal beings, right? We get what, maybe 100 years on this earth? It's not very long. And out of our hundred years, <clears throat> we've been extremely blessed to be born in this time, in this place, right? I mean, you're not going to do a whole lot better than being born at this time, at this place. Um, we are insulated from so much suffering and so much hardship, and, and, and we should be incredibly grateful for that. It doesn't mean we're insulated from all of it, because all suffering is real suffering. And as a result, even for people who are extremely blessed, Suffering is still suffering and pain is still pain. And, and all of those threads, we get caught up in them. We see them and, we, and we, we obsess over them, wondering how in the world anything beautiful could come out of them. What we need to realize is that while we live in the threads, God lives in the tapestry. All of these threads are being woven together by a master craftsman. There's not a single thread that will not become part of the fabric of his blessing. I saw this illustration um, a long time ago. I really liked it. I don't know if you guys have ever seen those the hoop art things. They take a piece of cloth and they put it on a little wood, wooden hoop and then you, you know, you sew it. You blank faces. They do this thing. Some people do this thing. 
and they make art, right? It's pictures. It's kind of cool. And then, then they take the cloth out and you can frame it or, you know, put it in a drawer. Um, you probably find some at your grandma's house. I don't know. But, um, the front side's beautiful. When you flip it over, what you see on the back side, it's just a mess. Because on the back side, all you see are the loose threads. Right? Listen, y'all, we live on the back side of the kingdom of God. We're not there yet. All we see are the loose threads. All we experience is what feels like chaos. And, and, and how in the world can this jumbled mess actually produce something beautiful? We're living on the backside. But there is coming a day soon when the tapestry is going to be flipped over and we see the picture. When we see that God has in fact been working all the loose threads of human history together and weaving them into a tapestry of glory. We can't see it because we're not God. Right? We, don't, we, don't, we don't have the ability to, to zoom out to the big picture far enough to even be able to see our own lives, let alone be able to see how all of the events of human history are being woven together into this beautiful picture. But God can. And we believe God can tell a better story for our lives than we can tell for ourselves. That He can weave something beautiful out of all the random pieces that come together to make up our experience and, and all of that of human experience, right? You can't see it, but you're not the one working it all together. God is. So I want to be clear, when, when, when we say that all things work together for good, that doesn't mean that everything happens is good. There's a lot of evil in this world and a lot of bad things. People do things out of selfishness. They do things out of greed. They do things out of spite and hatred. Those are not good things. So when we say that God works all things together for good, we're not saying that all things are good. We say we have a God who is so great that He can, in fact, work with even the things He hates to produce something He loves. He has the ability to even weave sin into the tapestry in such a way that at the end of the day, it's part of the glory. The other thing we're not saying is, is that all things by their nature naturally incline toward good, right? This is, I mentioned this last week, it's one of the things that, that mystifies me a little bit about kind of secular evolutionary um, humanism. This idea that, that life just tends toward life, that it's always leaning towards some form of organization and evolution, growth, development, improvement. That makes absolutely no sense to me when we actually look at the nature of humanity and we look at the progress of human history. Um, we're not saying that at all. What we're saying is that there's God over the mess who has the ability to direct that mess. That while the second law of thermodynamics, that everything moves from a state of order to a state of disorder, is true, we have a God who's greater than the law and at the end of the day is able and is exercising his power to bring it all together in a beautiful way. We have a God who sits over everything that happens, and he's working it all together toward a specific goal. Everything is being aligned with a specific purpose. 
Now, before I move to that purpose, before we talk about that goal, I just want to pause on one more because I, I just know. When we talk about God working all things together for good, when we talk about the glory that is to come is so great that it can't even be compared to the suffering of this present time, there are for some people, there's the temptation to feel that potentially Paul is being a little flippant. That maybe he just doesn't understand my pain. That maybe this is just... Uh, some of that positive self-talk that's meant to get us to deny how rough life is and how much it hurts so that we, you know, a little bit of a, a, a soul opiate to just kind of get us through the day, right? A little Novocaine to dull the pain so that we can make our way through. I want you to remember that we, we have a God who understands pain. When God became man, He entered human existence in a way that allowed him to taste it, experience it in ways we can't understand. First Peter, in talking about the nature of God, tells us that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, right? God revealed himself in in the Old Testament. He said, my name is Yahweh. I am the ever-present one. God exists outside of time. Time was created for us, creatures, to exist in and move in and have our lives. God is ever-present. He is right now at the beginning of creation, at the end of time. He is transcendent to all human passions. A thousand years is like a day, right? A thousand years is like a day. Time doesn't pass for him like it does for us. But think about the opposite. A day is like a thousand years. God is not only transcendent to time, He is imminent in time. That means He experiences each moment of time more truly, more deeply, and more profoundly than we ever could. He understands our pain more deeply than we understand our own. You know why? Because our pain passes. Our pain comes and it hurts, and then after time it dulls and it passes. For God, a moment is like a thousand years. Time doesn't pass. That means God understands your pain more deeply and more profoundly than you ever could. He understands betrayal. He understands physical suffering. He understands limitations. He understands frustrations. He understands disappointments. He understands unfulfilled hopes. Why? Because he was a man. And he experienced all of those things over the course of his lifetime. And for God, a day is like a thousand years. He is both transcendent to and imminent in time. So before you think God is flippant about our suffering. Pause and consider the suffering he entered into purely because he loved you. There was nothing that compelled God to become man other than his love. There was nothing that forced his hand. There was nothing that moved him to this level of generosity other than his enduring commitment to see you redeemed, to see you restored. So when he says... That the glory to be revealed can't even, can't even be compared to the suffering that is? He's speaking not just from the authority of his godhood. He's speaking from the authority of his experience. He knows what he's talking about. We have a God 
who entered into our suffering and knows it more deeply and profoundly than we ever could. This God works all things together for good. This God works all things together for good. Now, there are two qualifiers on this blessing. God works all things together for good, but of course, that leads us to the question, well, then for who? For whom does God do this incredible thing? There are two qualifiers on this statement. Take a look again at verse 28. For we know that for those who love God, that's the first qualifier, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All right, so today we're going to deal with the first qualifier, for those who love God. And next week, we're going to be getting into the second qualifier for those who are called according to his purpose. We're going to get into to his calling and his predestination. So we're going to swim at the deep end of the pool next week. So I invite you back. Uh, I love swimming at the deep end of the pool. It is theologically complex. It will challenge you and encourage you. Um, but this morning, we're not going there yet. This morning, we're going to be looking specifically at, at this qualifier. God does these things for those who love God. Listen. God loves everyone, right? For God so loved the world, right? That, that's pretty inclusive. <laughs> that's, that's everybody in the world and all the systems, in fact, they create. That's a, that's a much broader statement than most people understand. But um, he makes this blessing available to everyone. Right, This blessing of justification, this blessing of forgiveness, this blessing of, of the death, resurrection of Jesus. When, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for sin, singular. Right, That's what John proclaimed when, when John the Baptist saw Jesus and getting ready to baptize him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, singular. Not the 14,227 sins of the people that are going to be forgiven. No, the sin of the world. He paid the price of sin, and as a result, his death and resurrection is effective for anyone who believes. Anyone who comes to receive grace will receive grace. Anybody who comes and says, I want to receive the gift, will receive the gift. But God will not force his blessing on anyone. While the blessing is available to all, God will not force his blessing on anyone in the all. So in the end, it only comes to those who willingly receive it. To those, as Paul says here, to those who love God. So let's pause for a minute because that's a different way of talking about this, right? Paul has already, man, we've spent, I don't even know how many messages looking at Romans 3, 4, 5, 6, right? Those chapters where Paul was establishing that, that we receive justification. We receive the Father's blessing by grace through faith, right? It's extended to us by God's unmerited, undeserved love and favor, and it's received by us when we have faith in Jesus. When we trust the God who intervened for us, we trust the Savior who died for us, we trust the promise of God in the Son of God, that, that He has actually done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He has paid the price we could never pay. He, he has accomplished what we could never accomplish so that we can receive it. Not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, but purely because He gives it. Right, We receive the gift that, that God justifies the ungodly. 
We don't have to do a thing. In fact, we can't do a thing. We don't try to earn it. We don't try to deserve it. We simply receive it because that's all we can do. All we can bring to God is our need. And faith is what gives us the ability to do so. To come and say, I trust you enough to simply present to you the vulnerability of my need. Now give me the forgiveness, the justification, and the love I need to be forgiven and set free, right? Why is Paul now shifting and saying, instead of saying faith, he's saying love. For those who love God, is he adding love to faith? In other words, it's not enough to just have faith. Now we also need to love God. And if so, how much do we have to love God? What if I don't love God enough? What if my love is insufficient? Because I don't love God a lot of times. In fact, there's a lot of times I go through my day and I don't feel very much love for God at all. Right? I kind of appreciate who he is and what he did, but I don't have a lot of warm and fuzzies for him. So, so what does this mean, this whole love thing? What is, it, what, how, it, is Paul redefining faith as love? Yes and no. Yes and no, as, as it usually is, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Listen, there is no faith without love. You can't have faith in Jesus without all experience, also experiencing love for Jesus. You can't. You know why? Because, because God reaches out to us in grace. God reaches out to us in love, and faith is what allows us to receive that love. But listen, you can't actually receive love without responding to that love. Because this isn't just a, a transaction where I receive a benefit or, or a payout or a, or a monetary, you know, like, oh, thanks for 10 bucks, right? No, this is the gift of a relationship. You cannot receive the gift of love without actually being changed by that love, affected by that love, and responding to that love. Faith, the trust that allows us to simply come to God and say, I'll receive what you give. I'm undeserving and unwilling. I can bring nothing to you. Is also awakened in the faith to the profound experience of love. And it awakens within us a gratitude and a joy and a responding love to God. God reaches out to us in love, promises us to save us and and calls us to trust Him. And there's no way to take hold of that promise with faith, without also responding in love. But Paul's point here is not to redefine faith, right? It's still, we're saved by grace through faith, right? That, that is the consistent message. His point here isn't to redefine faith. He's looking at the outcome of faith. Because what we're looking at is the outcome of the blessing. Faith, y'all, is a means to an end. As important as faith is in the Christian life. And there is going to always be an element of faith in your relationship with God. Faith is going to get swallowed up by love. Faith is required for us to trust. And faith is how we take hold of a promise that we haven't yet seen. And a person we have not yet talked to. Because we've heard a message from people we find reliable. The apostles of the New Testament and the scriptures. But there comes a point where faith gives way to seeing and hope gives way to experiencing. But nothing gives way to love. Faith is the beginning of the journey toward love. Love is the destination. There will come a day where our faith and our hope will simply be swallowed up in our experience of love. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 13 that faith, hope, and love, these three abide, but the greatest of these is love. 
Because love is the one that endures. Love simply grows and expands in its experience. Faith is a means to an end. Faith is not the goal. Love is. Faith is the start of the journey. Love is the destination. It is the fulfillment of the great command. Right? When Jesus was, was challenged during his lifetime, what's the great commandment? What are we supposed to do to please God? And he responded, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two things are, are founded all the law and the prophets. In other words, everything God has revealed, everything God has said, everything God has done came from this foundation. This is the true fundamental foundation of the reality of your existence. You were created to love God in response to his love and to be freed by that love, not to compete with others, not to be living in envy of others, not to compare yourself to others, not to try to defeat others, but to love others as you have been loved. Love is the foundation of reality. Love is the purpose of our existence. There is, in fact, nothing of meaning that is not grounded in love. It doesn't matter how much money you make, doesn't matter how much success you have, doesn't matter how many followers you have on social media, doesn't matter um, how many people sing your praise, doesn't matter what kind of car you drive, it doesn't matter. None of that matters if it exists outside of the context of love. Love is the only thing that gives life meaning. And at the end of the day, if we're rich in love, man, we become generous with everything else. We will gladly give up what isn't valuable to experience more of what is. Love is true wealth. Love is the foundation of reality. So so Paul's not setting faith aside. He's looking at the outcome of faith. We love God because we've responded to God's love toward us in faith. And, And if we love God, Paul's got some really good news for us. You're going to get a whole lot closer to the one that you love. That one that you delight in? Yeah. You're actually going to be recreated, not just so that you're near him, but so that you're identical to him. We will be conformed to the image of Jesus. The God-man Jesus was our forerunner, defining the nature of our new humanity, and we will be conformed to Jesus. This is the goal around which all human history has been working toward. This is it. This is the redemptive goal that God has been working all things toward. When, When Paul says all things work together for good, this is what he's talking about. This is the good that everything's working toward. This is the culmination of the story. This is the great reveal. Verse 29, take a look at it. For those whom he foreknew, he also, be, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. All right, we'll get into the, the predestination stuff next week, all right? We'll have some fun with that then. What I want you to pay attention to right now is not predestination. What I want you to pay attention to is what we've been predestined to. That means before the foundation, before God even created the earth, before mankind rebelled, from the very beginning, there was a purpose to God's actions. What was it? That we might be 
conformed to the image of his son. God's purpose was to conform us to the image of his son, the resurrected son of God, the son of man. Listen, we were created in the image of God in our first father, Adam. Right? Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. In fact, the word image here is striking. When, when Paul uses that language and he says um, uh, that we will be conformed to the image of his son, that's an that's a interesting phrase. Why doesn't he just say you're going to be conformed to Jesus? Because he's actually wanting to draw our minds back to Genesis 1.26, where that word image is used. He's using this, this language to create this parallel. Right In Genesis 1.26, It says this, then God said, let us, and this is God speaking, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And if the hour there is freaking you out, just think about it, the Trinity, right? Three who's, one what? One God, three persons. I can't explain it any better than that. All right, so, but but this God says, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, right? God created mankind in his image for dominion. In other words, to be stewards over all of creation. God created Adam and Eve in his image and he put them in a garden. Y'all, what is a garden? A garden is a cultivated space of wildness where God took the raw building blocks of creation and created something beautiful, organized, intentional. Was it a French garden with perfectly symmetrical hedgerows? Was it an English garden? with things kind of bushy and growing. I don't know. What I do know is that it was intentional. You catch what I'm saying? And then God put Adam and Eve in this garden and said to them, protect what I've given you and make more. He gave them the gift of culture and he gave them the raw materials of this world and said to them, image me. Do what I've done. Be engineers. Be artists. Be architects. Be laborers. Create music. Write poetry. Build buildings. Take this gift that I've given you and image me with it. Fulfill my command by exercising dominion over what I've entrusted to you. Be stewards and image God. And they were supposed to exercise these attributes that were like God's for God's glory and mankind and the rest of creation's good. Now, of course, we know that all got messed up when our first parents rebelled against God and it was all plunged into the chaos of the loss of Shalom, right? But it doesn't change the original intention of humanity. That's what we were created for, right? Now, we are being recreated in the image of Jesus. We were created in the image of God. Now we're being recreated in the image of Christ. What Adam broke 
Jesus fixed. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam rebelled, Jesus obeyed. And where Adam plunged humanity into the loss of chaos, Jesus won shalom back for us. We were created in the image of God. We are going to be recreated in the resurrection in the image of the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus. And God has, from the beginning, working, been working all things together to this end. To fill the world with a new humanity. Why? So that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's what it says. Now listen, God's not lonely. He didn't do all this so that he could have a bigger family. Hey, hey, a little lonely. God did it because he is so good, he wanted to share his goodness. Because he's so glorious, he wanted to share his glory. He, he wanted to magnify the blessing of his goodness by magnifying those who could experience that goodness. And he could only share himself with those that were like him. Because those that were like him are the only ones that could truly appreciate and give glory to God for his goodness. So he created us in his image, and when we rebelled against him, he recreated us in the image of his son. What's beautiful about the work of God is that he he doesn't just fix what's broken, but when he fixes it, he makes it better than it was before. We're not going back to the garden. We're going forward to the new Jerusalem. We're not going back to the original intent of creation. We're going forward to the new intent of creation. We will still fulfill the original intentional create. We will be the stewards of all creation. We will exercise dominion as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We will employ ourselves fully in the new creation as humans. We will do human things as humans do. We will create, we will rest, we will love, we will laugh, we will feast. We will imagine. But we'll do it in complete shalom with God and with one another. No longer competing, hating, envying, and fighting, but resting, loving, delighting. Because we'll be in the image of Christ. God created mankind for a purpose, and in Jesus, that purpose will be accomplished. We will be human, fully human, with Jesus as our king, our brother, and our friend. He was born as the first fruits of a new humanity, and we will be raised. And in that new world where we are redeemed and restored, there will be no more groaning. No more yearning for what could be. There will only be delighting. There will be no more war, no more envy, no more jealousy, no more fear, no more greed, no more disordered desires. We will be crowned with glory and with honor as was intended in the original creation. But it will be a glory and honor redeemed by Christ and made even more glorious by His presence. He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right. We're going to stop there for today.
Uh, next week, we're picking this back up. If you want to join us, we'll be getting into the fun theological complexity. But for now, that's where we're going to stop. We're going to take a little bit of time, and I'm going to create some space for you to respond to God and do some business with God. We, we like to do this at the end of our service. Um, and so I'm going to put some response questions on the screen behind me. And uh, don't worry, it won't be long. If you're like really nervous with quiet time and silence, uh, we'll have Jeff up here kind of fiddling on the guitar a little bit. And, um, uh, and don't worry, it's only going to last a couple minutes. But I would like you in this time to pray, right? Let's, let's just enter God's presence. And, and, you know, if you need some help guiding your thoughts, we'll put some questions on the screen. And then we'll come back together. We're going to share communion, and then we're going to close out <clears throat> in song. But let me pray for us as we move into our time of response. Father, we thank you for this incredibly good news. We thank you for this incredible blessing. It is so much better than we could ever hope or desire. <clears throat> the reality, Lord, is that when we really understand what's being promised, we really understand uh, the scope of this blessing, it's hard for us to believe. I, it just, it more, a little bit like doubting Thomas, um, I at times feel like, man, I believe, help my unbelief. Like, this feels like a fairy story. It feels like like the kind of story that kids make up. To, but Lord, I think the reason we're so obsessed with these kinds of stories is because we so deeply long for them to be true. I think the reason that every culture and every time has has dreamed of these stories and wished they could be true is because we know at the heart of things your love, and we miss your love. We want to be united to your love. And we know that at the end of the day, if we're going to experience life as it was intended to be created, it, it, we have to experience it in relationship with you. So Lord, we thank you that you've done the work to win what we've lost. You've paid the price to redeem us from our slavery. You suffered and died that we might receive life. Awaken our hearts into deeper faith and love and response to your grace. And Lord, awaken our hope, our yearning, our groaning for the blessing that's ahead of us because it is incredible. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in just a moment.